Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you pray with me? Lord, come, come by your Spirit and be with us. Come and stir our hearts, Lord, whether we be here in this room or in rooms across the city watching this online. We need you, Lord. We need you, Spirit. Come and, and fill this place, fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, I need you. Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, it's really good to be back. I uh, am so grateful for the vacation time that you all afforded my family and me. It was much needed and uh, much appreciated. And uh, it was a good time to be away. Uh, it was a, some good time away, I should say. Um, but I'm definitely back from vacation now. There's no question about that. Boy, am I back. You see, uh, we may not have timed our vacation too well this year. Uh, so we came back to town on August 12th. We then got a new puppy on August 14th. Then our kids started school on August 18th. I had a visit to sign estate planning papers. I had a dentist appointment and a first vet appointment on the 19th. I had a staff vestry retreat on Saturday. And oh, by the way, there was a sermon to write somewhere in the midst of all of that. So, uh, no easing back into the saddle for me. It was kind of uh, like one of those scenes in an old Western. You ever seen that, you know, the scene when, when the cowboys had a few too many whiskeys at the uh, old saloon and then his compadre wakes him up the next morning to get him back in the saddle so they can ride off to um, Dodge City or wherever and he takes a big bucket of cold water and throws it into the guy's face. You know that scene. Well, I'm not saying I frequented any saloons or had too many whiskeys necessarily on my vacation, but there was a cold bucket of uh, puppy house training, and I've been getting uh, that one in the face every day uh, since we got back, and uh, including today, um, as has my family. So, I'm back in the saddle. We're all back in the saddle here, and we're continuing our ride through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And today we come to the first 34 verses of chapter 15. So if you didn't already open it up, if you want to open it up, uh, it's uh, on page 961 of the Pew Bibles. If you have your own Bible, please open it to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at the first 34 verses. And you might say that in this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul is playing the role of the compadre with the bucket. And, and the group of the Corinthian church members are getting a big splash in the face. In fact, Paul says as much in verse 34 when he tells them, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this. To your shame. Splash. 
And really, he's been doing lots of cold water splashing throughout this letter uh, uh, to wake up the Corinthian Christians from all kinds of drunken stupor, including actual drunken stupor at the Lord's Supper of all places. So remember, uh, Paul is in this letter writing uh, a response to a letter he's received from some of the leaders there in the church in Corinth. A letter that has evidently some, some questions, some concerns, some grievances about certain ideas, uh, behaviors that have emerged within the church. Um, and once again, here in chapter 15, we have a contingent of the Corinthian church who are off base uh, in their thinking, in their speaking, in their acting. And now that it's come to the Apostle Paul's attention, he's going to deal with it and how. The controversy here in chapter 15 is perhaps the most egregious of all the ones we've looked at throughout this letter. It centers around a group who evidently reject the idea of a bodily resurrection. And likely this goes back to a a cultural uh, infatuation with Greek philosophy within a certain echelon of Corinthian society. And this same infatuation has uh, now its tentacles wrapped around certain members in the Corinthian church. They're either in that echelon or they're aspiring to that echelon and they're getting all caught up in this Greek philosophy. The idea that there could be something like the anastasis necron, which is Greek for the resurrection of the dead. But I think the Greek sounds even more gross, like anastasis necron. It just sounds blech. And that's how they felt. These people that were into Greek philosophy felt like, ugh, this is, this is unsophisticated. This is a little too literal, this notion. Now maybe, maybe these folks um, had taken this idea of resurrection and tried to sort of refashion it in a more palatable way, right? So some kind of Greek philosophy version, um, you know, that, the, that the, the soul is is released from the body in order that it might attain to the realm of God or some Greek thing like that. Or, or maybe it's just like, you know, we just have all these great memories of Jesus and that's, that's all we need. It's just his memory in our hearts, right? Who knows what they were doing. Those ideas, these Greek philosophies, that might have been a little bit more palatable. That may have been something that the wise, as we've talked about in the letter, that they could buy. But this idea of rising corpses is to these pretentious philosophy aficionados, childish fundamentalism. But Paul cannot abide these people who are wise in their own eyes, who are wise uh, in the eyes of the local Corinthian society, when the very salvific power of the risen Lord Jesus is at stake. These people, they think they're full of wisdom by disdaining the resurrection. But Paul knows that they're intoxicated with their refined skepticism. They're drunk with thoughts of, Uh, and philosophies of the who's who of the what's what uh, there in Corinth. And so to use a phrase Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 16 of his letter to the Romans, these people are ashamed of the gospel. And so Paul wants to wake them up and, and remind them of what they have received in the gospel. This rock on which 
they can stand and in which they are being saved each and every day until their last, that day when they will be, as we read about in chapter 13, face to face with their risen Lord and, and then have true wisdom, true, full, and complete knowledge. Now I know in part, says Paul, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so he begins this section of the letter with a, a powerful sentence that encapsulates the whole argument and what's at stake. He writes in verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul wants them to be reminded in their minds, but also in their hearts, that the good news of the resurrection of Christ is not something that they earned. It's not something that, that they conceived of, you know, kind of uh, fabricated on their own. It was received. That's important. And this is not some ethereal philosophical concept. It's solid. It's the solid thing on which they can stand and not fall. It's more than a philosophy, a set of ideas to just inform life. This is a tangible reality, and as such, it is still actively at work saving the believer. And so it's something on which to hold fast, or more accurately, to have holding you. The, the way like a, a train car is, is coupled to uh, the, the locomotive. Right? The car holds fast to the engine, and the engine holds fast to the car, and the engine drives and draws the car where the engine is going. Now, these people, they've just tossed the gospel of the resurrection aside. And Paul cannot tolerate this drunken stupor at all, for it leads not to a simple hangover, just stumbling uh, missteps, but indeed it leads to destruction. It brings the whole Christian faith down and makes it nothing. And so Paul launches into his response. And he, first he gives a, a sort of historical uh, argument. And then second he, he gives a theological and Christological argument argument. And then last of all, he gives a very practical argument. So first he starts uh, with this historical argument. Verse 3, uh, Paul, he's showing a humility here. And again, he makes clear that the gospel that he's been preaching is not a philosophy that he has devised. No, it is something tangible that he has received. What did he receive? Well, first he gives just the basic facts of the Holy Weekend, right? Verses 3 to 4, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Just the facts right there, right? The essence of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter. Then, in verses 5 to 8, Paul gets very historical and very tangible about the resurrection. How? He lists all the people to whom the risen Lord appeared. 
And Paul's historical argument here, it has weight. It has weight in terms of, of the sheer volume of people that he lists. There's Cephas, which is Peter. There's the twelve. Then there's 500 of the brothers at one time. Then there's James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostles. And there's, uh, this argument has weight in terms of, of the uh, verifiability of the historicity of the resurrection. Verse 6, he says most of the witnesses in that group of 500 are still alive. He's basically saying, you can check my references. And then finally, there's the weight of Paul's own personal testimony. That the Lord Jesus appeared to him. Himself a witness. He's not worthy to have had him appear, but he, he's appeared nonetheless, right? It's quite despite the fact that he's a, unworthy as a former persecutor of the church. And so if these other factors of the numbers, the sheer numbers, or the fact that some of them are still alive, you can go check in with them. Maybe, perhaps, the, the personal relationship that these Corinthians have with Paul, the founder of their church, the one that they know um, himself, a witness to the resurrection, will convince them that the bodily resurrection of Jesus really is a historical fact. But the implications of this sort of anti-resurrection heresy aren't just historical. It's not just that they're denying history. There's actually significant theological and Christological implications. So to deny bodily resurrection in general is to deny Christ's resurrection. There's the Christology thing. And if Christ is not raised, then the gospel is utterly negated. Right? Verse 14, Paul, he says, my preaching is in vain. In verse 15, he says, we make God a liar. And if God is a liar and Christ is not raised, then the whole Christian faith is, verse 17, futile. And if it's futile, then you're still in your sin. Your sins are not forgiven. Verse 18, he says, death still has the last word. And effectively, what happens? Christ is made into this earthly, what, guru? Like, charismatic leader? That is, I should say, a dead guru. And as a dead man, you're not that charismatic, quite frankly. Not very inspiring. If it's only for this life that Jesus came, well then, Paul says, those who still call themselves Christians are pitiful. They're not just pitiful. The most pitiful. But Paul goes on, verses 20 and following. He says, that based on the historical fact of the, of the resurrection of Christ, which he already elucidated in verses 3 to 8, then there can be and is, for those who believe, salvation from sin and death, and then the ultimate condemnation on the last day. So he writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this theological and Christological gospel-asserting argument uh, has very real practical implications. Not just 
ultimately at the last day at the resurrection. But right now, the here and now, Paul wants his readers to know that the bodily resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Not just so you can have pie in the sky when you die, but for right now. Paul argues that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then no one will be raised from the dead. And so, things like hope, faithfulness, perseverance in the midst of suffering, laying one's life down for the sake of others, good morals, all of it meaningless. Meaningless. Like, what are we doing? If this life is all there is, and Jesus came and did some good teaching, perhaps some, showed some compassion, maybe did some healings or fed some people or whatever, got into some good trouble with the authorities, but in the end he died and is dead, then Paul says, why would we, talking about himself and his colleagues, why would we put ourselves in all this danger just to preach this message? Why would we put it all on the line like this? And I mean, for me, I mean, I've put some things on the line. I mean, at the very least, like why on earth would I stand up here, and I've said this before, standing up there, like why would I get in this get up? Like what is this about? Why aren't we on the boat at brunch? He says it's, it's, it's meaningless if it's only for this. If it's all just a hoax, then nothing is, is gained by all the risky and exhausting gospel mission work that Paul and the other apostles are doing. He famously quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, why don't we just live it up? If this is all unsophisticated nonsense, verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So also, in Christ, shall all be made alive. And that truth makes all of this worth it. If tomorrow we do not die, then we can endure. We can face the hardest of the hard things. We can confess our failings, and be humble. We can suffer. We can sacrifice. We can love. We can serve. We can hope. We can rejoice. Indeed, it's the only way we can. All because the dead are raised. That's a bucket of water that I need splashing me afresh today and, and quite frankly, every day. I wonder, how about you? How about all of you? 
Do you feel that you're in a drunken stupor of some sort or another? And you're effectively denying the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Are you ashamed of the gospel? It's a big question. I've been asking myself this one in a big way. Am I ashamed of the gospel? Have I shown that I'm actually just not really buying it, right? I mean, maybe not overtly. But you know what I mean, right? It's not really real to you. You don't really trust that the dead are raised, that you will be raised. Ask yourself these questions. How do you view suffering? What kind of willingness do you have to sacrifice? What about those unlovable people that you meet? Does compassion and charity or disgust and condemnation rule your heart? Is your life your own? Do you hope? Would you say you have joy? That's a hard one these days, isn't it? Can we have joy when there's a pandemic? When we see these images on the news of terrible things in Afghanistan and Haiti? City council meetings where people are spewing vitriol at one another over masks. Spitting on ER doctors who are exhausted from caring for children in an ICU? Where can joy come from apart from the hope, the assurance that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead and through faith in Christ, so will you.